Father, we're thankful that we can return to your house on this Sunday evening. We're thankful that you have given us a day one out of seven to be able to set aside for the nourishment of our soul, that we can gather together to worship you, to hear your word proclaimed, to meditate upon your truth and rightly apply it to our lives. And we pray, Father, that you would grow us in grace, that you would make us more like Christ. Give us the wisdom and the strength that we need to put off the old man, to put on the new man, to be able to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. We pray that we would, as we go into this week, daily walk in the Spirit, that we would be used of you, Father, to bring honor and glory to your name. Give us the wisdom to deal with the enemy as he shoots his fiery darts at us. Use us, Father, to be your bold witnesses. We continue to pray, Father, that you would use this church to be a lighthouse in this community. We pray that even as we meet this evening and people pass by on this busy street, that they would look up and they would see the lights on here at this place and that you would put in their heart a desire to worship you on the Lord's day on the evening, and that you would bring many our way, Father. We pray that you would open up doors and opportunities, Father, for us to go into this community and, and meet those who live in this neighborhood. And we pray especially for those that would not have a church home, Father, those that do not know Christ, that you would open up opportunities for them to be witnessed to and that they would come to know Christ and seek to have a church home and gather with us to worship you in truth and spirit. We pray, Father, for our missionaries. We thank you that we are able to support many throughout this world and throughout these United States, Father, who are ministering in various places, preaching the gospel and seeking to disciple believers. We pray especially for our brother Rusty Boland there in Senegal and his daughter and her husband, uh, Cindy and Guy, and we pray that you would use them there, Father, to continue to do the work that you have given them to accomplish. We pray that you would protect them, that you would give them good health, and, Father, that they would be able to see others come to Christ. We thank you, Father, for their commitment and their dedication there in that country of Senegal, and we ask that your protection be upon them. We also pray, Father, for our brother Tiago and his family there in D.C. as they continue to get settled. We pray, Father, that you would use him so that he might be able to prepare himself for returning to Portugal. Pray that you would give him the knowledge that he needs as he seeks to prepare himself to be the coordinator there in Europe for nine marks. We also pray that you would give him the wisdom he needs to be on the translation committee there in Portugal. Give him wisdom to prepare for the seminary and also for his pastorate. Father, we know that he has numerous things on his plate, but we know that you have prepared him for that task, and we thank you for how you have used him in the past and how you will use him and his family in the future. Provide for them all that they need to accomplish what you have given them in their heart. We also pray, Father, that you would raise up others in our church to go forth and to be ministers and missionaries 
We thank you for the students that you have sent to us from RTS, and we pray for them as they study and prepare themselves for the ministry, that you would give them the wisdom and knowledge that they need to be future pastors and ministers in the gospel work. And we pray that there would be many that would be raised up out of our church. We pray for our children. We ask, Father, that you would be merciful and gracious to them to save them in an early age and that they would not go down the path of rebellion and destruction, but, Father, that they would live all their days uh, seeking to please you, seeking to be like Christ, that you would change their hearts in an early age so that they might desire to live for Christ. And, Father, that you'd place in their hearts a desire to be used of you to bring honor and glory to your name. We pray for the message tonight, Father, that you would use it to speak to us and that there might be repentance in our life as we hear your word proclaimed and that we would be renewed by your spirit to serve you. Use us for your glory and honor. And all of this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. For this evening, we will continue our study of God's sign acts in Ezekiel chapter 5. So if you would, please open to Ezekiel chapter 5 in your Bibles. We'll read the text and pray that God's blessing uh, will be upon us. So let us read Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, the whole chapter. Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 1. And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take the balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. And a third part you shall take and strike with the sword and, uh, all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe the sword after them. And you shall take... From these a small number, and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these again you shall take some, and cast them into the midst of the fire, and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set, I have set her in the center of all the nations, with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations, and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are around you and have not walked in my statute or obeyed my rules and have not, and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you. And I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of your abominations, I will do with you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat your fathers, shall, shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive I will scatter to the winds. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, surely, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. The third part of you shall die in pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword, 
all around you. And the third part, I will scatter to all the winds, and I will unsheathe the sword against them. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy, when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make, a, make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you. When I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes, I am the Lord, I have spoken. When I sent you against, when I sent against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you. And when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we read these words and we tremble. Lord, prepare our hearts even as we read these things, even as we meditate upon them together. Lord, even in the midst of your judgment, help us to see hope. Help us to see that your purposes are not mere gore and destruction of your people, but even in the midst of the horror that we see plainly revealed here, Lord, that you are indeed a merciful and gracious God and that you have indeed provided hope for those in exile. Lord, please be with us now as we open your word and understand it. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen. Last week, we touched on some key characteristics of Sinax and what they do in prophetic material. In chapter 4, there was a lot of different Sinax that we had to interpret. The depiction of Jerusalem under siege on that little tablet that we saw. Ezekiel was bound on his side and the dinner cooked by uh, cow dung. All these performances that Ezekiel took on were visual aids to communicate God's judgment that was soon coming to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, again, was that last major Israelite city in the land of Canaan, in the Promised Land. The inhabitants of Jerusalem had rebelled, and so God appropriately brings his just punishments against them. God's sign acts uh, against Jerusalem continue into chapter 5. This is a continuation from chapter 4. But thankfully, we only have one sign act to uncover its meaning. As we go through this last sign act of Ezekiel's early ministry, I really want us to focus on God's relation to Israel. And that will be our main focus, God's relation to Israel. And I want us to see his delight uh, in bringing judgment upon his people. That is something that we need to see in this passage, that he brings, that he gets delight is that he has delight in bringing judgment upon his people i do want us to see that but for our purposes tonight we have three main headings our passage tonight can be outlined in these three points the sign the significance and the satisfaction so first i want us to look at the sign that's communicated in ezekiel sign act in ezekiel chapter 5 verse 1 it's it reads we read this and you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. 
as we said, chapter 5 is a continuation of chapter 4. And so we are to see that Ezekiel was still bound on his floor with his picture of Jerusalem that was before him. In chapter 5, we are to see that he was still performing that 430-day Sinai from chapter 4. Ezekiel was to shave his head and beard and to evenly divide his hair into three uh, balanced portions. Shaving one head and beard uh, was an act of cursing. To be shaven was to communicate grief or ailment. But the importance of our passage is upon Ezekiel's hair, not so much that he was shaven. At the end of the 430-day period, Ezekiel was to use his hair to communicate what would happen to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In verse 2, we read, A third part of you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city, when the days of the siege are completed. And a third part of you shall take and strike with a sword all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe the sword after them. So using that clay tablet that depicted Jerusalem from chapter 4, Remember, it was a, simply a depiction just of a clay tablet with Jerusalem, with the camps all around it, and with its various uh, and with the nations surrounding it. it uh, Jerusalem under siege, simply put. Using this tablet uh, that depicted Jerusalem with its enemy camps, Ezekiel was to take a third of his hair and burn it, burn it in the midst of Jerusalem that was depicted. Another third of the hair was to be cut with a sword possibly uh, it's actually supposed to be communicating that the people who were cut with a sword were actually actually happening in Jerusalem, but it's mixing metaphor. It's going back and forth between uh, what is actually wanting to be depicted or communicated by the Sinai with actually is being written here. So what we could say here is that possibly Ezekiel's razor was used to cut this portion of hair, this second portion of hair, further. And this portion that was cut would be placed around the enemy camps depicted on the tablet. And the third, the last third, the last portion was scattered to the winds, depicting a third of the inhabitants of Jerusalem being sent into exile. Though it's fairly easy to understand from this Sinai what was going to take place with the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Yahweh still explains its full meaning. In verse 12, Yahweh explains, and you can read the definition there, verse 12. Yahweh explains, A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst, as illustrated by the hair burned uh, in the midst of Jerusalem on the tablet. A third part of you shall uh, fall by sword all around you, which is the hair and the camps cut with Ezekiel's razor. And a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheathe the sword after them. And those are those who would be exiled swiftly from Jerusalem and pursued by the enemy. Violent exile. In other words, though each portion of the inhabitants receives a severe covenant curse, the final portion that is exiled is further described in verse 3 and 4. Of this portion of hair that would be exiled, God commands Ezekiel. This is verse 3. And you shall take from these, meaning that third portion, that was going to be exiled. You shall take from these a small number and bind them, meaning the hair, into the skirt of your robe. And of these again, you shall take some and cast them into the fire, uh, into the midst of the fire, and burn them in the fire, meaning the one in Jerusalem. And from there, a fire will come out into all the house of, uh, of Israel. So the final third of hair, which is further divided, and some are cast into the fire in Jerusalem, but some of the hair is bound into Ezekiel's wardrobe. 
At this point, Yahweh doesn't explain what this means, as he does in verse 12 with the others. Though he doesn't explain this portion as he did with the others, we can still have an idea of what, uh, what Ezekiel's performance would communicate. The edge of the robe in verse 3 is a reference to one of the four tassels on the outer wear of an Israelite garb. Uh, you might be familiar with this. Uh, the the uh, Pharisees had the long uh, tassels that would show their covenant fidelity. Though it's not abundantly clear from this text, we know from history, um, I'm sorry, let, let me back up. Uh, again, the, the, this, these would be the tassels that he's talking about. The hair would be bound in this tassel. In Numbers 15, God commands the Israelites to make these tassels so that they would remember their covenant with Yahweh. In the Jewish mindset, these tassels were synonymous with covenant fidelity. They were a picture. They're almost kind of like a sacrament. There were pictures of a greater reality, of our covenant commitment with God. Though it's not abundantly clear from this text, we know from history and other sections of Scripture that some Israelites remained in Jerusalem after the siege. Most likely, the hair attached to Ezekiel's garb would represent the faithful remnant that would remain in Jerusalem. This remnant would still receive the covenant curses of famine and pestilence as depicted by the fire, spreading to the entire house. Nevertheless, the remnant would survive until the Lord relented from his judgment. Though they would still feel the covenant curses, this remnant, they would still feel the curses, they would not, nevertheless not die, they would remain. So what we are to see here, brothers, is that the focus of chapter 5 is the covenant curse of God being enacted upon Jerusalem. This is its primary point. Covenant curses are coming upon Jerusalem. As I said earlier in our study, Ezekiel was a writer who had a profound interest in the Torah, particularly the book of Leviticus. We see that Ezekiel used the covenant curses in Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26 is literally, uh, you can look at your title and it will say something like the covenant curses as uh, a part of the English subheadings. We see that Ezekiel uses these covenant curses in Leviticus 26 to base God's judgments in the old covenant law. For example, the three curses that we see in verses 1 to 3 are explicitly stated in Leviticus 26. Pestilence, famine, and attacks by foreign enemies are curses grouped together in Leviticus 26, verses 23 to 26. I won't read that, but just for your notes. There are other curse, curses in our passage that we'll see in a moment that come from this chapter of Leviticus as well. But brothers, what I want us to see is that there's nothing surprising about what God was going to do with Jerusalem. The audience who would see Ezekiel Sinai and who would respond in faith to it, when they saw this Sinai and when they heard the message that would come with it, they would understand what God was bringing was the penalties of the Old Covenant, particularly Leviticus chapter 26, upon Jerusalem. This said, this does not mean that the judgment was the only message God was communicating through Ezekiel Sinai. Though God's remnant would suffer for their sin in Jerusalem, they would be spared from death and violent exile. Though the main focus of our passage is upon cursing and punishment, and that is key, the main focus of this text is the punishment of Jerusalem. The covenant curses coming upon Jerusalem, that is the primary focus. 
These, these are things that we have already seen and have spoken at length already. Though this is the main focus of our passage, we should still nevertheless see the message of mercy and grace in Ezekiel's sign act. Just as God's judgment should be understood from Ezekiel's sign act, God's grace should be seen as well. In Leviticus 26, the passage that Ezekiel alludes to uh, for these covenant curses, God promises mercy even in the midst of their suffering. After God's judgment comes upon Israel, after the curses come, God states in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 44 through 45, these words. Yet for all of that, meaning they're disobedient, when they are in the land of their enemies, those exiled, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. By being faithful to the covenant that, that he made with the patriarchs and that he confirmed with the people at Sinai, by keeping a remnant alive, and particularly by keeping them alive, it's, it's as do, uh, Leviticus states, is that by not completely wiping out, by utterly destroying Israel, by not doing that, Yahweh would be faithful to his covenant agreement. Even when the majority of Israel is scattered to the nations and only a small and weak remnant is left in Jerusalem, God was still weaving his redemptive purposes. He was still weaving together his redemptive story together that, that were promised to Abraham and to the people at Israel, at, at Sinai. So brothers, even in the midst of Yahweh's great punishment against Israel, against their great sin, even though this is horrific sins or punishments coming Israel's way, Yahweh still restrains himself because he has purposed to bring the Redeemer through the line of Judah. It would be out of that faithful remnant in Jerusalem or those in the exile that Mary and Joseph would eventually come to us. And it was Mary who, be, who would become the God-bearer of Jesus Christ. God's purpose in this covenant transaction, even the curses, even the curses of the old covenant are for the ultimate purpose to display God's grace in Jesus Christ. Though it is bleak for Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, they should not give up hope for restoration. These rebels have forgotten that God is just, yes, and he would destroy them as he promised. But Israel should never forget that God is also merciful, and his plans are to use them to bring about eternal redemption in Jesus Christ. The affliction of Israel was severe, yes, but Israel was to see that God's purposes are merciful and gracious. Brothers, from where we are, we know the culmination of God's plans in the Old Testament scriptures. We know that he had purpose, a remnant to bring about Christ. And though we don't experience the old covenant curses of God as Israel did, we still feel the pain of his providence that is meant to bend us to our knees. That same providence that brought Israel to its knees, appropriately so, justly so, 
we also, though it is not a curse, we still feel the pain of God's providence upon us. Whether it's societal strife, political or national instability, severe government overreach, or even this pandemic, we feel pressure like none we've experienced in a while as a church or at all. These are unique and difficult times. And the church is caught up right in the middle of all this turmoil. But even as we experience this difficult season of God's providence, brothers, we must not lose hope. We must not lose hope in God's purposes. Just as Ezekiel's audience was to know God's purposes from his word, we too should take heart in God's word. Our Lord, Christ himself, laid out this same reality for his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed. In John 16, as Jesus was explaining what was going to take place after his crucifixion, he tells his disciples these words, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to you to his own home and you will leave me alone. each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. This is Christ speaking. Take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Brothers, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he was preparing for his death. He knew that his weak disciples will forsake him at their most needed hour. It's similar for us as Christians trying to be bold and compassionate during the season of unrest in our nation. We are needed now more than ever to proclaim the gospel and to live it out. Even when we feel that you personally, or the church are failing in our fidelity to God. Brothers, even if you feel this reality be to be true for yourselves, hear Christ's words. Turn back to God and take hope. Take heart. We should take hope knowing that Christ told his disciples, who would soon forsake him, that they should have peace. Even when they personally failed and when they saw trouble and tribulation on the horizon, the disciples were to remember Christ's words. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Brothers, if you feel weak in your spiritual walk during this season, if you're timid or frustrated with this world as I am, if you feel that this whole Christianity thing is too much, brothers, take heart. Hear Christ's words. Take heart. Your Savior, your Savior has overcome the world indeed. His salvation has come in full. Take comfort in that reality. Prepare yourselves, yes, as we go through this uh, uh, turbulent time, this turbulent period. The Israelites in Jerusalem and those scattered to the nations felt the pain of God's providence. And we will too. We're not promised reprieve from that. We are promised tribulation in a variety of manners. But the Israelites were to prepare for this tribulation 
by placing their hope in God's word. When they saw that tassel being remain, they saw and they heard and they knew God was still with his people. God would prepare his remnant. His people would be secure. His eternal redemptive purposes will continue. Take hope. May we take God's word and take heart. Take heart in what Christ has spoken to us. Brothers and sisters, simply put, lean upon the gospel message. In this time when things are so frustrating, when things are difficult to bear, when, when Christianity, being faithful in, in all the strange and weird ways that we're called to in the scriptures, we're still called to that now. We're still called to worship. We're still called to teach our children. We're still called to deal with our fellow man, however violent and wicked and evil that man may be, with love and compassion. Brothers, we need to be prepared, and we prepare ourselves by giving ourselves to the gospel message, to the message that Jesus Christ does indeed save and that he empowers us that he empowers us to live through his spirit to his glory. Brothers, take heart in that gospel reality. Moving on in our passage, I want us to think about the significance of Ezekiel's sign act for a moment. And the significance is our second main point for the evening. Let me read verses 5 to 12 so that we have it fresh in our minds. Verses 5 to 12. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem, speaking of the Sinai. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around here. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent, than, in, than the nations that are around you and have not walked in my statute, statutes or obey my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, even I am against you and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of your abominations, I will do to you with what I have never, that I have not yet done and, like, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who will survive, I will scatter to the winds. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity." Verse 5, brothers, God directly connects Ezekiel's sign to Jerusalem's eventual destruction. But Yahweh goes on to explain the significance behind this destruction. As we stated earlier, the covenant curses of Leviticus are in view. In verse 6 and 7, the rules and statutes that are repeated throughout are referent to the laws of the Old Covenant. And I would say particularly to the laws of Leviticus because of Israel's failure to keep God's covenant, God says in verse 8 that he would punish their infidelity by executing his judgments, meaning the covenant curses of Leviticus. 
Moreover, Israel's sin was profound. God says that Israel committed abomination in both verse 9 and 11. And according to verse 11, the Israelites had profaned the sanctuary through improper observance to the Levitical laws of the Old Covenant. In order to defile God's sanctuary, the priest, or possibly the people, must have forsaken the ritual purity laws, or the laws concerning sacrifice, which could be a variety of either ceremonial malpractices, or even through idolatry. As we'll see later on in Ezekiel, the sanctuary housed many foreign gods. Take a moment to, to, to imagine that. The sanctuary of our Lord housed foreign gods in it. And these were abhorrent to God and his worship. We'll speak more of these abominable practices once we progress further in the book, because I don't want to uh, shortchange that passage. But in short, Israel was going to experience the covenant curses because of their covenant infidelity, their religious malpractice, and their idolatry. All of Israel's sins are reprehensible, more so than what we immediately see from this passage even. And God's judgment would match the grotesque sin that was before him. In verse 10, the horrendous covenant curse of Leviticus 26 verse 29 would be realized. The people of Jerusalem would eat their own children and vice versa. These children and these parents would die by the, by the teeth of their own people. Because of the gross acts of false worship and idolatry. But as Yahweh soberly states, my eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. Given that a major focus of Israel's sin it is focused on the cultic and religious domain, such as idolatry and defiling the temple, we should not be surprised at the severity that God brings. Remember that Leviticus is the same book that presents the story of Nadab and Abihu, who worshipped Yahweh by offering up strange fire, Leviticus chapter 10. Because of this sin of improper worship, these two men, these two priests, were consumed by God's fire. Though we should not minimize, minimize the offense of improper worship, we should still see that Yahweh judges Israel's sins for another reason, other than just simply uh, they, they did some improper practices. Notice that God gives a particular and repeated reason for why he would bring this worship. Notice that it's not merely that they broke God's covenant, that they merely broke the ceremonial laws. God says that Jerusalem, that he set Jerusalem in the center of nations, verse 5, and that Israel had rebelled more than the nations in the countries around her, verse 6. Israel was more turbulent, literally more noisy, than the nations around her. And Yahweh says that Israel didn't even obey the lesser rules of the nations around her, meaning that they were more sinful than the foreign nations. Verse 7. This is quite the rebuke from Yahweh. He's saying to Israel, you're worse off than I found you. Brothers, what I want us to see here is this. Israel's abominable and idolatrous practices and Yahweh's repetition of the nations should be understood as a singular major cause for Israel's cursing. Here's what I mean. The religious laws and ceremonies of the Old Covenant, that is Leviticus, 
had a purpose for nations that surrounded Israel. Leviticus, though it was written for the people and it was written for God's worship, it was also the way in which the nations would come to know Yahweh and his people. By Israel faithfully worshiping Yahweh according to his unique worship, the nations that surrounded Israel would be drawn to the worship of Yahweh as well. That was its purpose. For example, Ruth the Moabite was drawn to the worship of Yahweh by the fidelity of Israelite influences. And Hiram of Tyre was drawn to contribute to Yahweh's temple because of David and Solomon. So then by fidelity to God's prescribed worship, the nations were beckoned by Israel to worship the living God. However, as we so see in this passage, Israel had failed mightily, profoundly in this way. Rather than being a light to the nations, they were a stench before God. And God would deal with them accordingly. Brothers, what we can take from this passage is that God's worship matters. If we do not worship as God has prescribed in his word, we should not be surprised that he would not bless us in our endeavors. God loves his worship because he's the only thing being worthy. He's the only being worthy to receive worship. It is good and righteous for his image bearers to worship him as he has commanded in his word. When we fail to do that, we frustrate him. Brothers, our new covenant worship, by God's grace, is far less complex than it was under the old covenant. We have no need for meticulous procedure, but our worship is simple and straightforward. We read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, we see the Bible in the Word, uh, in the sacraments. So we should have no excuse in being faithful to the simple and easy pattern of worship. But that's not our main danger, brothers, here at Grace Baptist. That's not our main danger. We have a far more pressing danger. Our danger is more nuanced. We should be very careful in the way in which we worship. Brothers, our worship, even if it is perfectly within the confines of the regulative principle of worship, as it's taught in Scripture, Brothers, even if this perfect worship, so-called, if we have it, brothers, it is dead. It is dead worship if we are not vitally united to Christ through faith and empowered by his spirit. Brothers, this is a danger for us. Here's what I mean. What we do week in and week out within these walls is completely pointless unless we do so in love and adoration for Christ. Unless we have been born again and enlivened by the Holy Spirit, we cannot please God. As Paul so plainly says in Romans 8, verse 8, those in their flesh cannot, cannot please God. Brothers, I love the way we do worship because it is biblically saturated and commanded. But we must always be on guard against the notion that if we merely have the right worship, that we please God. No. It is in our sinful pride to think if we sing the good hymns, if we have that baptismal font in the sanctuary, if we do this or we do that, then we'll be blessed by God. Then we praise God rightly. Oh, brothers. 
with such a faulty and haughty spirit such as this be far from us. Brothers, the worship of God is important. And the way we do that is far more important. And the way that he has prescribed for us in his word is important. These means, but these things, they're not primary. Unless we are vitally united to Christ by faith, unless we come to worship expecting to meet with our God, brothers, and unless we expect God to work in our lives through this domain, this means of grace, this thing that we do on Sundays, that we come week in, twice a Sunday for, this thing that we're doing here, unless we are united to Christ, this is in vain. Brothers, I've been to some frozen chosen churches before, and so have you. Some further along in their pride than others are, are the various experiences I've had. Brothers, unless there is true spiritual life within the church, a congregation of apathetic worshipers is despicable, not only to God, but also to the worshipers out there. Brothers, may true worshipers of God come into this church. When they come into the church, do they see these people worship the living triune God? Is that what they see? Or do they see a goat barn? Spiritually apathetic. Brothers, this is a question for yourselves. Do I worship? Do I come to this place knowing that I'm experiencing the love of God? Do I come to this place knowing that I am vitally united to him through faith? Do I know that Christ is my Savior and he is the means by which I come to him and he is the end goal of all my life that he might be worshipped? Is that my purpose within this mere hour that we have? Brothers, those out there, those looking for true spiritual connection to the triune God, they're looking for this too. May we not find ourselves like Israel in judgment. May only true spiritual worship be found in these walls and out there as well among us here. Otherwise, brothers, we will share Israel's fate. And Israel's fate was horrendous as we've seen. False worshipers will be called out on that last day. May we repent from our false worship in whatever sphere of our lives, and may we repent of it profoundly. May God keep us from such a horrible fate. Unfortunately, brothers, Israel failed to render to Yahweh true biblical worship. Not only were they far from God in their hearts, they were far from his word. In verse 11, God says that he will withdraw from Israel because of their idolatry. However, this does not mean that God is leaving Israel in full. By withdraw, God means to communicate that he is withdrawing his benevolent presence from them. Rather than God extending mercy and patience towards Israel and their sin, Israel will receive from God the righteous judgment that they so desperately deserve. But in verse 13, God says that 
he will satisfy himself in his wrath against Israel. And this is our third and final point for this evening, brothers. The satisfaction of God's judgment. Due to Israel's idolatry and sin, Israel will have the opposite effect as a light to the nations. Rather than being a light to the nations, they were a stench to God. If covenant fidelity was to draw the nations to Yahweh, then Israel's infidelity will be a sign to the nations of what forsaking Yahweh looked like. In verses 14 and 15, we read these words. I will make you, Israel, a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations, all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you. When I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes, I am the Lord. I have spoken. God's judgments, particularly the curses of cannibalism during Jerusalem's famine, would be displayed before all the nations that surround them, and it would be horror. Rather than be the display of God's unique blessing on earth, Israel had become the display of God's curse. In verse 16 and 17, God repeats the curses and adds some more curses from Leviticus 26, such as wild beasts coming in and destroying them. God concludes the message of the sign act by once again underscoring that he will certainly bring his judgments upon Israel. Nothing could stop Yahweh from bringing his judgment to pass. The finality of the last words would, be reverber- would, had, would have reverberated the souls of Israel to terror. God evoked his covenant name, Yahweh, to underscore what was about to take place. God's word, God's covenant was going to be fulfilled. And there was nothing Israel could do except prepare. With this said, brothers, I want to spend a few moments on verse 13 in particular as we finish up. Verse 13 reads, Thus shall my anger spin itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh, and and that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spin my fury upon them. By the phrase, they shall know that I am the Lord. The Israelites would have remembered Yahweh and his covenant. His fury would have been immediately understood by the Israelites as the covenant curses, particularly the covenant curses of Leviticus 26. But notice that he compares his covenant curses with him speaking in his jealousy. In verse 13, throughout the Old Testament, particularly the Torah, God describes himself as jealous. By jealous or jealousy, God communicates. God means to, to communicate that he is jealous for his worship and for his grandeur, for his glory. Even when God says he is jealous for others, such as the Israelites, we are to understand that God is jealous for his worship from these people. As we said earlier, God is the only true object, uh, object of worship because he is the being of all worth. Let me say that again. God is the only true object of worth because he is the being in himself. He is 
all worthy. Since this is evidently true, God is the only proper object. God is the only proper object of worship. By God recognizing his own worth, it is more than appropriate for him to be jealous of his worship. This is appropriate of God. It's inappropriate for us because we are not worship. We are not worth in and of ourselves. We are not self-worth as God is self-worth. You see, it is improper for us to be jealous for, uh, for ourselves or to desire anything other than God. Simply put, it's improper for us not to worship God because God is the only being of actual worth. That's who he is in his nature. He is jealous. He is glorious. He is jealous for his own namesake. He loves his glory. And so in verse 13, when God says that he will satisfy himself in wrath and fury, we should understand that God is displaying his worth through judgment. Simply put, God is worshiping himself by judging Israel's sin. By satisfying his justice against sin, God displays his worth as the all-just and all-righteous God. In order for him to be just, brothers, we know this, God must satisfy his wrath against sin. Anything less would be unjust and unworthy of God. Brothers, this truth is so vital to grasp in our doctrine of God. God loves to display his justice against sin. And we have a very clear uh, definition of this in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses explains, uh, Moses declares that God delights. Hear that again. God delights in punishing the wicked just as he delights to bless the righteous. Deuteronomy 28, verse 63 states, part of the covenant curses of Deuteronomy, and as the Lord took delight in doing good and multiplying you, O Israel, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. Why does God delight in this? How could God delight in the destruction of his people? Brothers, it's very simple. It is because it is a display of his jealousy for his own worship. It is a display of his glorious being as the righteous and just God. Brothers, as I've said before, and I will say again throughout our time in Ezekiel, God loves his worship. God's worship is displayed in both his blessing and his cursing. So with this in mind, brothers, it's easy for us to fret, is it not? Just to think that God displays his glory through destruction should make us tremble. Because we all know that we have sinned against the perfection of our jealous God. But as true as it is that God displays his justice and punishing sinners, God is also rich and merciful. God is also rich and merciful in his grace. By sending forth his son to die upon that cross, 
our Father both displayed his justice and his grace in one simultaneous act. As Pastor Wynn so richly preached this morning, our sin was laid upon the perfect Lamb of God. And Christ, our Christ, our Savior, received the full curse and judgment of God in our place. In that moment, God's justice was satisfied against the sin of his people. And all those who call upon Christ and lean upon his atonement for salvation, God's justice against your sin has been satisfied. He glorified himself by bruising that man in our stead. His glorious justice was manifested on that cross. Brothers, the justice of God that can strike at the heart of any man can become a display of God's grace for those who would simply turn from their sins and place their faith in Christ Jesus. By faith, we take hold of that alien righteousness graciously provided to us at the cross. The cross was a manifestation, yes, of God's justice, is a display of his hatred and disdain for sin. But it's also a wonderful and beautiful and glorious display of his love, of his goodness displayed to sinners such as you and I. Brothers, I close with these words. As those who know For those who know Christ as both the just and the justifier of the ungodly, we should take heart. Brothers and sisters, through the preaching of the cross, let us take heart. Our God displayed glory in his goodness at Calvary. Though we should sit in the pain of Israel's sin, as we will continue to do as we go through Ezekiel, and though we should feel the sting of God's rebuke as he preaches to us through his word, we should never be without hope on this side of the cross. Christ is the satisfaction of God's justice in your place, and Christ is the display of God's goodness for sinners such as you and I. Oh, brothers, the only response to such a marvelous God as ours, one who is just so supremely just, worthy of worship, and so supremely good, Brothers, the only response to a God like this is indeed worship. Let us be jealous for our God, brothers. Let us be jealous for him and his glory. And as we come together thinking upon our Christ and the display of his glory there, of both justice and goodness of God, as we come together for this last song, brothers, may we sing knowing that our God is jealous for his worship. Brothers, will he receive that worship tonight? Will he receive the worship that is so properly his? Brothers, if so, praise the Lord. Brothers, do not withhold his worship. Delight in his worship as he delights in it himself. Be an image bearer. Delight in your God. Delight in your Christ. Delight in his worship. Let us pray. Brother, Father, we thank you for our brother, Christ Jesus, 
who came to die in the place of our sinful stead. And brother, uh, our brother Christ uh, was able to take upon himself our sins. And by your immense love, you sent him to us that he might indeed die in our place. You struck him with the curse, but we received the blessing. May we, O oh Father, understand what our brother Christ did for us. And may we, with humble knee, with grateful heart, and with loud voice, thank you and praise at this moment. Lord, please do indeed be with our worship. And may you receive all honor and glory, even from these feeble lips. We ask this in your son's holy, holy, holy name. Amen. Will you please stand with me and take